Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, is about a deeply controversial writer who's been remarkably influential despite the taint that hangs around his name. David explains what Carl Schmidt got right, as well as what he got badly wrong, and asks why he still grabs so much attention today. There is a central fact about Carl Schmitt that cannot be evaded, it cannot be avoided, it has to be addressed up front. Carl Schmitt was a Nazi, and he wasn't a Nazi in the sense that people might bandy that term around on social media to describe people whose views they find abhorrent, although many people find Carl Schmitt's views abhorrent. He was an actual, literal, card-carrying Nazi. He was a member of the National Socialist Party in Germany, between 1933 and 1936. He joined in 1933 after Hitler first came to power. He left in 1936, having for three years been a very prominent spokesperson for Nazi legal philosophy, going out of his way to try and establish a way of thinking about the law that he thought was consistent with Nazi ideology, including racial ideology. And yet he didn't go far enough for some. He came under the suspicion of the SS, He was investigated. He wasn't purged. He didn't become a pariah, but he did become an outsider. And for the remainder of the Thousand Year Reich, which only had nine more years left in it, he remained in the country. He remained in his job. He continued to teach and to write. He cooperated. More than that, he was complicit in the worst of the Nazi regime. He continued to write in support of various Hitlerite policies, including Lebensraum, the doctrine of expansion to the East, he was sufficiently complicit in the regime that when the war was over, he was arrested and he was held at Nuremberg and he was investigated and interrogated by the Americans who considered charging him with war crimes and in the end they decided against. Schmidt's defence during those interrogations was that he hadn't really understood the nature of the Hitler regime, which is frankly a pretty weak defence for someone who'd made his reputation as, in theory, the preeminent legal and political scholar in Germany. The intellectual defence for Schmidt and for reading Schmidt now is straightforwardly that the writing on which his current reputation rests, the reason that he is widely read in the 21st century, are things that he wrote during the Weimar period, so before he was a Nazi between 1918 and 1932, including the book I'm going to be talking about today, The Concept of the Political, first written in 1928 and published in 1932, so at the end of the Weimar period. But Schmidt was not a Nazi then. In some ways, in some ways, he was a critic of fascism, and he was a kind of defender of the Weimar Republic, a strange kind of defender, it has to be said, because he was also a very staunch critic of the Weimar regime. He thought that Weimar politics was rickety, poorly constituted, ill thought through, weak, chaotic, and ultimately incapable of defending itself, defending itself against its enemies. And he included among the enemies of Weimar, 
the Nazis, as well as those on the left, the revolutionary left, that also wanted to overthrow the established order. But I think one does have to say, given that Carl Schmitt then joined one of those enemies, indeed the triumphant enemy of the Weimar Republic, the people who killed it, that, and I think this phrase has particular resonance for Carl Schmitt, if he was a friend of the Weimar Republic, with friends like that, who needs enemies? So why do we read Schmidt today? We definitely don't read him because he was a Nazi. I think the reason for reading Karl Schmidt, which does depend on those Weimar writings, is not the defense of the Republic, the meaning mouth defense of the Republic. It is the critique, but it wasn't a fascist critique. It only became a fascist critique later. The original critique of Weimar politics was an attempt to disentangle two ideas that Schmidt thought had become confused, that were too often run together as though they were mutually reinforcing. And Schmidt really did believe that it was important to see just how different they were and are. And that argument does resonate now. It has resonated throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, though the Schmidt version of it was not read for about 40 years. He lived another 40 years after his interrogation by the Americans, and eventually right at the end of his life, he became semi-respectable again. He, he was always a little bit respectable on the fringes of right-wing politics in Germany, but he was rediscovered outside of Germany, including by some American political thinkers right at the end of his life, and slowly he came back into the mainstream, and he is now widely read on many university courses. The reason he's read is because of, I think, what he has to say about the relationship between liberalism and democracy. That thing that we call liberal democracy, we still call it that. We probably call it that more often than it was called at the time when Schmidt was writing about it, as though these two ideas somehow inevitably go together. And Schmidt wants us to know that they don't, and that if we don't see the ways in which they don't, this is the weak defense of the Weimar Republic, if we don't see how they rub up against each other, we will never be able to defend either liberalism or democracy. So how did Schmidt think we should distinguish between liberal ideas of politics and democratic ideas of politics? It was quite a stark, we might say stylized distinction in Schmidt's writing. Liberalism for Schmidt is about the individual. It celebrates the individual, individual identity, and therefore what it celebrates is difference and diversity. We are all individuals, we are all ourselves, therefore we are all different. And for that reason, liberalism also celebrates heterogeneity, variety. It is the politics of difference. But it was one more thing that Schmidt really identified with liberalism. It is for him inherently a kind of discursive politics. What liberals love to do, he thought, was talk. And this is small l liberals that we need to forget about contemporary North American definitions of liberalism. We need to forget about the parties that call themselves liberal or liberal democrat. This is that tradition of European thought stretches back to the 19th century, back to writers like Benjamin Constant. Liberalism as the way of solving political problems by talking about them, by bringing together different points of view, debate, argument. The definitive setting for liberal politics is a parliament or an assembly, a gathering together of different points of view in order to try and achieve that holy grail of liberal politics, consensus 
or if you can't get consensus, if you can't get people to see that they have things in common despite their differences, then maybe compromise, but at least agreement. It's about agreement. And if you can't reach agreement in the liberal ethos, according to Schmidt, you keep talking. If you're a liberal and you face a really difficult problem, you think what you need to do is to talk about it. And that, for Schmidt, stood in obvious stark contrast to his understanding of democracy, small-d democracy, a form of politics that had a longer history than liberalism, that preceded the modern age, that went back to the ancient world. Democracy, for Schmidt, is not individualistic. It is collective. The definition of democracy is majority rule. The many rule, and the many rule together, as though they had a single voice. You find a single voice within the group. And for that reason, democracy presupposes some kind of homogeneity. There has to be a collective identity in order for the group, the many, to speak with a single voice. But more than that for Schmidt, in contrast to liberalism, democracy is not primarily about discussion. If we think it's about discussion, we have confused democracy with liberalism. Democracy for Schmidt was about decisions. It was inherently a decisive form of politics. There might well be talking before the decision is reached, but the decision, the vote, the choice, is the essence of democratic politics. It will create winners and losers. The group will have spoken. Those outside of the group will not be represented in that decision. And the decision, even if not final, is at least the end of the conversation. You'll have to start talking about something else. If it's the case for Schmidt that when liberals see a problem, they want to carry on talking about it, when Democrats see a problem for Schmidt, they want to pick a side. So that stark difference does make it hard to see, and Schmidt certainly found it hard to see, why it's so often assumed that liberalism and democracy naturally go together. Individualistic, heterogeneous, discursive, on the one hand, collective, homogenous, decisive on the other. So did Schmidt pick sides? And often people have read Schmidt as someone who did pick sides. That is, he was on the side of democracy against liberalism. He sometimes called it a decisionist. That is, his political philosophy was the philosophy of the need to take decisions. Stop talking, just decide. It has its roots in Hobbes. And Schmidt was a student of, a writer about, and a critic of Hobbes. He had a deeply Hobbesian understanding of politics. And he was also pretty scathing, often, about liberalism, about the liberal ethos. So he wrote a wide range of books in the 1920s, and indeed before that, in 1918 and 1992, straight after the First World War, each of which, in different ways, offers a kind of critique as what he sees as the creeping influence of a certain kind of soft or vapid liberalism. One of the problems with liberalism for Schmidt is that it gets very easily connected to, it drifts into other isms. So it's a close relation to internationalism because if you're a liberal and you think that difference matters and that we all have our own identity, you don't really set much store by national borders and national boundaries, which is about excluding people. You want to bring people into the political fold. And internationalism then is not a very long way away from an even vaguer idea, humanism. The idea that really the ultimate political unit is either the human race as a whole, all of us, or at the very least, 
each of us as a human. So that then leads to what was to become the language of human rights. But humanism more broadly also leads to another word that Schmidt was very conscious of, humanitarianism, that the value of any political decision is what it means for the human itself, and that therefore decisions can be taken, indeed action can be taken, if liberals can ever bring themselves to decide and act, for the sake of humanity, that ultimate, for Schmidt, vapid idea. He also wrote a book, a really interesting book, called Political Romanticism, in which he also detected a strain of romanticism in liberalism, or perhaps it's a strain of liberalism in romanticism, because he also thought liberals just liked the sound of their own voices. One of the reasons liberals like to talk is that they like feeling that their feelings are being heard. It's about speaking from the inside out, speaking from the heart is often a liberal principle, not a particularly democratic principle, according to Schmidt. And there was one last ism that he associated with liberalism. It's not a word that's caught on, but it has a kind of ring to it, I think. He talked about occasionalism or the occasionalist. That is, the people who really love in politics an occasion, a moment to make a stand, to cut a figure, to be on the stage and to wear your heart on your sleeve, to seem to be feeling the moment, to see what's at stake, to emote, to have passions but also to hear the other side, to be the centre of attention. All of these things, Schmidt thought, came too easily to liberals. They had a kind of propensity for that kind of vanity. Vapid, empty, performative, lacking in grit. So part of his criticism of liberalism was that it was weak. It was a weak form of politics because it lacked the necessary decisiveness. But if that was all he had to say, he wouldn't be nearly such an interesting political writer because he detected another side to liberalism too. And he detected, you could call it an irony, I think it's closer to something stronger than that, a paradox at the heart of liberal thought, which is when it wasn't too weak, it was too strong. Liberalism had a tendency when it moves out of its introspective mode to be something aggrandizing and almost totalizing. And he thought he saw it around him because he detected at the heart of liberalism a kind of anti-politics. The liberal is the person who wants to limit the power of the state, to protect individuals against arbitrary interference, to respect diversity. So liberals like, and this is the classic, let's say, Benjamin Constant version of liberalism, liberals like to create barriers in the way of state action so that you can retreat behind those barriers and be safe. So liberalism puts up barriers in the way of politics. That, for Schmidt, is why it was a kind of weak anti-politics. That's why liberals often find it hard to take decisions, because they don't like to hurt people. They don't like to create losers and outsiders. But Schmidt also noticed that when those same people get into power, acquire the power of the state, their supposedly limited politics actually has no limits. And the problem is, that within liberalism, everything is potentially political, precisely because liberals want to defend individuals, diversity, heterogeneity. They want to treat everyone as being of value. They want potentially to treat everything as being of value, every opinion, every point of view, every slight, every hurt, every insult. For that reason, liberals don't know where to stop, Schmidt thought. There was no inherent barrier 
to the expansion of liberal politics when it becomes a politics into every area of life. Because everything could be political. Everything could be painful or hurtful, an affront, an offence. And so for Schmidt, the real danger of liberalism is that when it's not too weak, it doesn't know where to stop. And that when liberals acquire power, they are more dangerous than Democrats because liberals in power are limitless. Democracy does, therefore, for Schmidt, stand in contrast to that. Democracy has limits. It has the limits of its borders and its boundaries. It has the limits of the fact that it is comfortable with winners and losers. So if one of the problems for liberals is that they're never quite able to say whether it's for reasons of vanity or principle, that's not our problem take your problem somewhere else. This one's not for us. You don't belong to our group. You don't belong to our tribe. We're not interested. Tough luck. Life's like that sometimes. Liberals find it really hard to say that. Everyone's problem is potentially their problem. Democrats, for Schmidt, should have no problem with that. If you are not part of the group that gets to decide, it's not your decision. And even if you are part of the group that gets to decide, you may well be on the losing side. And in a democracy, you cannot say that the views of the losers count the same as the views of the winners. Because if you did think that, you would never reach a decision because the losers would have a veto. And certainly Schmidt thought that in some liberal democratic systems, the big problem precisely was that liberalism introduced too many vetoes into democratic decision making. So democracy does sound like it is Schmidt's version of politics. But it is more complicated than that. And it's partly more complicated than that because the world is more complicated than that. It doesn't just divide up into these sort of vapid or crazily self-aggrandizing liberal regimes and these robust, ruthless, exclusive democratic regimes. At the time Schmidt was writing, the world was full of regimes that were a bit liberal and a bit democratic, although they were going to then suffer at the hands of Hitler. But also, he understood history well enough to know that there had been regimes that were liberal before they were democratic, just as there had been regimes, including all the way back in ancient Athens, that were democratic before they were liberal. The preeminent example of a liberal state that was not a democratic state was pre-democratic Great Britain, the British state of the late 18th, early 19th century, the state that Benjamin Constant envied as a great liberal state that many 18th century European writers looked to as a model of liberalism rule of law, respect for private property, respect for certain individual rights, with a parliament where issues were discussed and debated, but a parliament that was capable of taking decisive actions, a parliament that was capable of defending the regime. One of Schmidt's criticisms, and as we'll see in a minute, this was his ultimate criticism of the Weimar Republic, that in its vapid form, liberalism can't defend itself. It's so busy worrying about everything that it can't see that it just has to focus on its enemies. Well, the British liberal state of the late 18th, early 19th century was pretty good at identifying, taking on and defeating its enemies. That was the state that successfully prosecuted the wars against Napoleon. No one could look at that British state, the state of Pitt the Younger, and say that because it was a parliamentary liberal order, it didn't know how to defend itself. One of the ways in which it defended itself was when it had to, it suspended its liberal principles. It became a much more decisive, much more oppressive state, but it did not become more democratic. It only became more democratic later on in the 19th century. 
Decisive liberalism is not a contradiction in terms. History shows that. And for that reason, it's not simply liberalism that Schmidt has in his sights. His real complaint is about what happens when liberalism and democracy get jumbled up together. And his case study for this, his shining example of it, is the Weimar Republic itself. Because he saw pretty clearly from the outset that the Weimar Republic was trying to be both things at once. And this was written right through the Weimar Constitution. The Weimar Constitution is a remarkable document. It's Schmidt thought, and he's not completely wrong about this, an extraordinarily wishful document because it thinks it's possible to be all the good things in politics in constitutional terms at once. It is a very liberal constituting order. It defends all of the basic liberal rights, freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedoms of property, including private property protection against the arbitrary rule of the state. You can't just, according to that constitution, take people's property away from them. You have to respect rights and diversity and difference. It's a liberal document. It's also a deeply democratic document. It talks about the will of the German people. It talks about the manifestation or the expression of that will in unitary terms. It talks about the German people taking decisions, being able to decide. It establishes a presidential system in that the president of the Weimar Republic was elected by the German people as a whole, a very democratic principle, one people, one voice. And it assumes that these things can coexist. And for Schmidt, the real evidence of the incoherence of trying to get them to coexist was the parliamentary system itself. So not the presidential bit that was written into the Weimar Constitution, but its basic parliamentary order, the body that should ultimately be taking the decisions, was to be elected by proportional representation. And proportional representation for Schmidt is a very good example of what happens when you muddle up liberal ideas and democratic ideas. So the liberal bit of that is the proportional bit. PR systems celebrate difference and diversity. They don't want just two parties competing to speak for the people as a whole, as happens under first-past-the-post systems. They want to allow the full range of voices into Parliament, at least as wide a range as possible to be heard in debates before decisions are reached. You don't want to exclude people who are not spoken for by the two main parties, so you allow their parties a voice too. And even if there aren't that many of them, 5%, 6%, 8% of the population, even if that means that parliament is made up of 10, 15 different parties, and even if it means that governments can only be forged by coalition and consensus and compromise, well, a liberal would say, good, consensus, compromise, even coalition. These are liberal ideas. And yet it's not a pure liberalism because these are still elected representatives and they're answerable to their constituents. They aren't like the elite liberals of late 18th century British parliamentary life who frankly didn't have to care too much what the voters thought of them. In Weimar Germany, politicians were preoccupied with what their narrow group of voters thought of them because they had to answer back and to those voters. So it was the worst of both worlds, indecisive, discursive, endless debates, endless attempts to forge compromise between people who really couldn't compromise because they were there to represent a particular democratic interest within the state. They could be summoned, they could be fired if they didn't speak for 
Protestants or Catholics or peasants or students or workers or northerners or southerners, this region, that region, this identity, that identity. If you're going to have identity politics, people have to be free within a parliamentary setting to change their mind. That's the only way liberalism can work, to see outside of the identity. If you're going to have identity politics that's also democratic politics, Schmidt thought, it'll never work. And one of the manifestations of its inability to work is that it would not be able to defend itself against the parties that had no interest in coalition and consensus and compromise, but wanted to tear the whole thing down. While that parliament was debating, either the left or the right was plotting to destroy it. And Schmidt thought there was no defence of Weimar politics unless the democratic bit could be carved out from the liberal bit. If you wanted to defend liberal principles in a liberal democratic constitution, then you needed the democracy to be free of liberalism in order to take the decisive decisions. One way Schmidt runs this argument is through an idea that he borrows from ancient Rome and that he wrote a book about at the dawn of the Weimar Republic and informs his thought, which is the idea of the dictatorship. So dictatorship for us is the ultimate illiberal idea. And when I say for us, I mean, that's what it's come to mean in later 20th and 21st century common parlance. You don't think of the liberal dictator. But for Schmidt, dictatorship on the Roman model was a brief interlude in which a system that had lost the ability to decide, to defend itself, found a way to defend itself, to do what he thought was the ultimate political thing. Indeed, in the concept of the political was his definition of the political thing, to identify its enemies. Schmidt said that politics could be defined in terms of one particular distinction. It was not good versus bad. It was not beauty versus ugliness. It was not a moral distinction. It was not an aesthetic distinction. He also said quite explicitly, it's not an economic distinction. Politics is not about distinguishing between the profitable and the unprofitable. It's not about growth versus recession. Politics is about the friend-enemy distinction. Who can belong within our group so that we are able to take decisions? And who makes it impossible for us to take those decisions? Who has to be excluded? Inclusion, exclusion was the essence of politics. And a regime that had lost the ability to do that because it was too busy debating or squabbling or posturing, too busy focusing on the occasion and not enough on the decision, had to be rescued from itself. The Roman model for doing that was to suspend the constitution, to step outside of the liberal order, make the political choice, who can we tolerate and who can we not tolerate, and having excluded the intolerable, re-establish the order, which could be a liberal order. But the liberal order can only be saved by stepping outside it. One of Schmidt's catchphrases was, the sovereign is he who decides the exception. To be sovereign in a regime, including in a liberal regime, had to include the ability to decide to suspend the rules, that the situation was exceptional and required an exceptional solution. In the Weimar context for Schmidt, that meant emphasising the presidential side over the parliamentary side. There was a clause in the Weimar Constitution, Article 48, that said when Parliament cannot 
reach a decision, then the president can step in and suspend parliamentary government, essentially, though this wasn't quite the language that was used, impose a sort of dictatorship in order to rescue the possibility of parliamentary government, maybe by excluding certain people, maybe by reconstituting the parliament, maybe even by changing the rules. And Schmidt thought without that, without that kind of presidential, but also to his mind, democratic rule, because where does the president's authority come from? It comes from the fact that the president in the Weimar Constitution is the only uniquely qualified person to speak for the people, because the president is the only representative elected by the people as a whole. Presidential politics had to, for Schmidt, trump parliamentary politics. It is true that at the end of the Weimar period, presidential politics did trump parliamentary politics. The rule of law was suspended, and as a result, Hitler came to power. I'll come back to that at the end. I want to say something different about Schmidt's argument, though, because the critique of Weimar was that Weimar, as an example of liberal democracy, was too weak, couldn't defend itself. But just as in the 18th century, in the early 19th century, there were examples of the kind of regime that Schmidt said shouldn't be able to defend itself because it was too discursive, being perfectly able to defend itself. So, of course, there were examples of liberal democracies that could defend themselves. By 1918, and indeed even in 1932, notwithstanding the Great Depression, the most powerful state in the world was a liberal democracy, the United States of America, and it had a liberal democratic constitution, a constitution that both empowered the people to speak through a president, though slightly softened by the existence of an electoral college that was meant to distance the president from the direct representation of the people. But still, I don't think anyone would doubt, certainly by that point in America's history, that America was a democracy of a sort, but it also, in its constitution, upheld liberal rights and liberal values. And in 1918, No one could look at the American state and think it didn't know how to defend itself. It had just been on the winning side in the First World War. And it was at that point under Woodrow Wilson, embarking briefly on a crusade to impose its version of politics on the world, to make the world safe for what Wilson called democracy. It was on a democratic crusade. And yet for Schmidt, that was the other side of liberal democracy. When it's not too vapid, when it's not too weak, it doesn't know its own limits. When it actually has power and the ability to decide, the decisions are limitless because Woodrow Wilson had fallen into the trap, not of the Democrat, who would have been perfectly happy simply to defend American democracy, but of the liberal Democrat who thought that American democracy and its principles could and should be extended to the rest of humanity. And so America embarked on the first of its periodic bouts of humanitarian intervention, of trying to reorder the world, not just its own people and its own place, but the whole world. And that, for Schmidt, was the other warning sign of what happens when liberalism and democracy get mixed up together. The liberalism can infect the democracy, not by weakening it, as happened in the Weimar case, but turbocharging it, getting it to lose sight of its limits, getting it to lose sight of the fact that it's about exclusion as well as inclusion, that it cannot say everyone's problems are our problems. In the German case, Schmidt thought, 
liberalism weakened democracy. But in the American case, he thought it blinded democracy to its inherent limits. So because there's this double side to Schmidt, he's capable of critiquing from both sides the liberal democratic consensus, that it's too weak, but also potentially that it's too strong. It helps to explain one of the really remarkable features about Karl Schmidt, about his thought in the Weimar period and also his subsequent legacy, given that, though not in the Weimar period, he was to become, briefly but indelibly, a Nazi. He has real appeal, cachet, speaks to people on both the left as well as the right of politics. There are many left-wing admirers of Karl Schmidt's political thought. It was true then, and it's true today. So it was true in the Weimar period that Schmidt appealed to people on the right. And there were those who thought that he had exactly diagnosed what was wrong with the Weimar arrangement. And what was wrong with it was that it was too weak and it needed to be more folkish. It needed to be more homogenous, less tolerant of opinion, more decisive in excluding the people who wanted to do it down. The assumption being for those on the right, that those people were on the left. And also that it needed to be more robust in its defence of some liberal values. So not on the whole for those people on the right, the values of freedom of expression and freedom of association, but very much for those on the right, the values of private property and the protection of property against the state. And a robust state would be much, much more decisive in getting rid of all of those leftists who wanted to take property away from those who owned it. Schmidt spoke to those people, but he also spoke to those leftists. Because another remarkable feature of the Weimar Constitution, it really was trying to have it all, as well as being very democratic and very liberal, it was also a social constitution. So it defended democratic rights and liberal rights, but also social rights. There was in the Weimar Constitution a right of every German to a home. There was a right to full employment that should be enacted by the state and upheld by law. There was a right to welfare and protection against unemployment. This was a proto-welfare state and quite an extensive welfare state. And for those on the left, there was a similar appeal on the part of Schmidt to their instinct, which is that this constitution, though it had all these noble ideals in it, was too weak to enact them, which is, what if you could separate out the different parts, park the liberal bit, and hook up the democratic bit with the social bit, real social democracy? Decisive, probably presidential action, get a socialist, a true socialist elected president, suspend, perhaps when you need to, parliamentary squabbling, and nationalise industry, levy taxes, redistribute. Compromise on the principles of private property, not in the name of liberalism, but in the name of socialism. Schmidt appealed to people in Weimar on the left and on the right who thought this constitution could work if the different bits of it weren't all run together, but we decided which bit really matters, and then we acted on that bit. And if we acted on that bit, the other bits could come back in later, take some private property now, establish a social order, and then maybe we can allow some more of those liberal principles. But the case was for decision. In a similar but very, very different way, Schmidt has more recently cut across divisions between left and right, and that's most visible at the point where Schmidt's writing became most prominent again in the West, particularly in the United States, after 9-11. So after 9-11, there was a vogue for the writing of Carl Schmidt, and 
he was used in order to criticize aspects of what was happening and to defend aspects of what was happening. And it turned out he could be used both by the champions and the critics of the war on terror. How is that possible? Well, for the champions of the war on terror, for those who wanted to defend the need of the American state to defend itself against threats to its way of life, Schmidt was the philosopher who said it was okay to suspend the Constitution. It was okay to suspend certain liberal rights if that's what it's needed to protect that very Constitution against its mortal enemies, the people who want to destroy it. And a lot of the language that was used around the time of 9-11 in its aftermath, particularly as the war on terror got going, did have Schmittian echoes. Schmidt talked about the friend-enemy distinction as being necessary, indeed he called it existential, for a given way of life. It was existential in the sense that unless a political system was able to make that distinction, to identify and to resist its enemies, it could not defend its own way of existence. So if its way of existence was liberal or liberal democratic, unable to make that distinction, the way of existence, the way of life would be defenseless. Tony Blair talked like that in the aftermath of 9-11. It was existential, and it was about the defence of the liberal, the democratic, the Western way of life. In the United States, Schmidt was wheeled out by constitutional theorists and lawyers who wanted to justify George W. Bush's decisions to step a little bit, but significantly, outside of the rule of law. Guantanamo. Not many liberal rights or values there, but Guantanamo was established to defend the American way of life, the liberal democratic way of life. How is that possible? Schmidt explains how it's possible. It's a temporary suspension in order to re-establish the order. Of course, the flaw with it is the temporary suspension turns out not to be temporary. And yet at the same time, Schmidt was also cited by the people who were criticizing Guantanamo, who were criticizing the war on terror, because it was that part of Schmidt's thought that says the danger with liberal democracy is not ultimately its weakness, but its hubris. The danger of liberal democracy is that it does not know when to stop because it thinks it can fight wars on behalf of abstract ideals like humanitarianism, democracy itself, the liberal order, on behalf of everybody. And for those critics of the war on terror, what they saw was a repeat of the hubris of the Wilsonian period after the First World War, trying to make the world safe for democracy, staging humanitarian interventions. And there is a section of Carl Schmitt's The Concept of the Political, which looks like a pure critique of late 20th century and early 21st century humanitarian wars undertaken by liberal democracies to save the world from its enemies. And what Schmidt says is the great danger of wars in the name of humanity is that their enemies are dehumanized. So when Schmidt talks about the friend-enemy distinction, he says the point of it is that it's limited. You don't dehumanize the enemy. You treat the enemy seriously as a human being, just not like you. And so once you have defended yourself and your way of life, there is no reason to mistreat that person. But if you fight a war for humanity and you dehumanize the enemy, the enemy is utterly defenseless because the enemy has got nothing that is of value for you. 
that liberal democratic wars for humanity know no limits in the means they're willing to use to get their way. The cruelty, the arbitrariness, the barbarity, as Schmidt put it, of those wars is worse than any genuinely political war between a friend and an enemy, each of whom is capable of respecting the other while recognising the ultimate political difference. That argument really spoke to many, many people after 9-11. And yet I think that argument also highlights what's wrong with Schmidt's analysis of politics. And I think what's wrong with Schmidt's analysis of politics is that it is too ecumenical. It is too appealing to anyone who wants to use it for almost any purpose, because it actually contains within itself the same flaw that he identified in liberalism. What's wrong with liberalism for Schmidt is that though it tries to limit politics, it knows no limits. Schmidt's own argument had that characteristic too. So Schmidt, in trying to say that politics is not economics, is not morality, is not aesthetics, Schmidt said there's no such thing as office politics. Politics shouldn't enter the domestic sphere. Politics is the business of the state. Politics is about just one kind of distinction, the friend-enemy distinction. It should leave everything else alone. It doesn't need to stray into morality. It doesn't need to be founded on economic principles. It just needs to defend the way of life so that that way of life can flourish, so that it can be beautiful or wealthy, so that it can be good. And there are echoes of Hobbes here too, the idea that the Leviathan, seemingly all-powerful, is actually there to allow all non-political forms of life to flourish. Schmidt tried to limit politics. And yet when you say, well, so politics is just one possible category, one possible distinction within the full range of human activities. What is its distinctive quality? The word is existential. It is both limited and it's everything. It's both limited and it's the only thing under certain conditions that matters. It is both limited and it is potentially total. And the fact that the distinction that Schmidt tried to hold up between politics as just one thing among many ways that human beings can live, and politics as having within it, because of the way he'd constructed it, a kind of totalizing potential, is shown actually in how he did try to defend himself to the Americans, to those liberal democratic Americans who questioned him after the Second World War about his complicity in the horrors of Nazism. And what Schmidt actually said in his defence was he hadn't understood the Hitler regime because he had misunderstood its essential character. He thought, he said, that it was a dictatorship, and that was what he wanted. He thought Germany needed a dictatorship at the end of the Weimar period, and that Germany, with a dictator, could restore a kind of political order. What he had failed to understand is that it wasn't a dictatorship at all. It was a totalitarian regime. And in the transcript, which has been published of the interrogation of Carl Schmitt at Nuremberg by an American lawyer, you can almost hear the American's bafflement at this distinction. It doesn't really mean anything to him. This just sounds like nonsense, nitpicking of words. He wanted a dictatorship and what he got was a totalitarian regime. What the hell does that mean? And yet for Schmidt, that was absolutely the central distinction. He thought he was rescuing politics from totalitarianism, including the totalizing ambition 
of liberal democracy, he thought that even dictatorship, one might even say especially Roman dictatorship, was designed to rescue politics from infecting everything. It was there to put it back in its box. And so his defence was he thought that's what Hitler had come to do for Germany, to get politics back in a space where other forms of life could be allowed to exist. So his American interrogator was baffled by that argument. But there's another thing one can say about that argument. Given that's what Schmidt thought, given that he thought the most important thing was to be able to distinguish between limited dictatorship and totalitarianism, the fact that his political philosophy did not allow him to notice that Hitler was not a limited dictator, but had totalizing ambition, shows that his political philosophy ultimately was no help at all. Discover more about the controversies around Schmidt in our show notes or by going to the History of Ideas page at talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Next week, David discusses Joseph Schumpeter's theory of democracy. Schumpeter said democratic politics was just like selling soap to the electorate. Is that really as cynical as it sounds? <laughs> <laughs>